Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. Hi, I'm Claire Murphy. This is Mamma Mia's daily news podcast, The Quickie. And today, four years since the COVID pandemic started to spread across the globe, we look at one of the fallouts of long COVID on our sex lives. Could the various Deltas, Omicrons and all those variants have kicked our libidos to the curb? But before we jump into bed together today, here's what's happening around the world for Monday, February 26. Police are continuing the search for the bodies of two men believed to have been murdered in Sydney. Former Channel 10 reporter Jesse Baird and his partner, Qantas flight attendant Luke Davies, haven't been seen for a week. Neighbours reporting an argument at Baird's Paddington apartment on Monday night before a worker discovered blood-stained items belonging to the pair in a skip bin 30 kilometres away. Police arrested a 28-year-old currently serving police officer and charged him with murder after he handed himself in to a Bondi police station on Friday. Investigators say the police officer was in Newcastle the night before he handed himself in, leading to a search of a waterway in the area. The search extending to an area of Goulburn in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands, where divers will begin looking today. Donald Trump is a step closer to becoming the Republican candidate for the upcoming presidential election after he won the primary in his last standing competitor, Nikki Haley's home state of South Carolina. Trump has now won all five Republican nominating contests so far, but Haley says she will continue to fight, taking her campaign into Super Tuesday on March 5, when voters in 15 states and one US territory will deliver one-third of delegates ahead of the Republican National Convention, which will then formally choose a nominee in July. Haley says she has a duty to provide Republican voters with more than one choice, not a Soviet-style election. While Trump's camp have dismissed her entirely, his campaign manager responding with Nikki Who when asked about her on the sidelines of a Trump event on Friday. Australian Elizabeth Debicki has taken out a SAG award ahead of fellow Australian Sarah Snook for her portrayal as Princess Diana in a shake-up of winners that has also put the Best Actress Oscar betting into a spin. The award saw iconic cast reunions take to the stage, including members of the Modern Family TV show, Hobbits, Elijah Wood and Sean Astin from Lord of the Rings, and a hilarious Devil Wears Prada moment with Emily Blunt and Anne Hathaway, quoting Miranda Priestly lines back at Meryl Streep. While Oppenheim took out Best Movie Cast, all but assuring it will take out some of the top honours at the Oscars. Best Actress went to Lily Gladstone for her role in Killers of the Flower Moon, ahead of Emma Stone. The predictions for who will take the Oscar next month now up in the air. Taylor Swift's man Travis Kelsey has been spotted partying hard with his teammates in Vegas after returning from his whirlwind trip to Australia. Kelsey landed in Sydney on Thursday morning ahead of Swift's first show at a course stadium Friday night. The couple went to Sydney Zoo and spent a night in Swift's luxury accommodation before heading to her concert Friday night, jetting back to the US on Saturday where he joined his Kansas City Chiefs teammates to party hard for their Super Bowl win. Swift, meanwhile, has been delivering epic shows in Sydney for the past three nights with one more to go tonight before she heads to Singapore. 
That's the latest news headlines on the way. We're getting into a bit of sexy time and how coming down with COVID could have turned us off of getting it on. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. Look, from the very start here, let's just apologise for bringing up COVID again. We know we spoke about it almost literally non-stop for two years and we're thoroughly over it. But while we know a lot of the ways in which that spiky little devil has impacted our health, our social skills, our work lives and our education, a first-of-its-kind study has just revealed the havoc that it's wreaking on our sex lives. It's not the first study linking COVID and sexual dysfunction, but previous research has been conducted mostly on men. This one uses an online survey of more than 2,000 cisgender women, half of which have never had COVID, and all of them who'd had sex in the past four weeks. Using the FSFI, the Female Sexual Function Index, the study found that women who've never come down with a case of the spicy cough had significantly higher levels of desire, arousal, lubrication and satisfaction when you compared them to those who'd recently caught the virus, or more specifically, those who were suffering from long COVID. Those in that long COVID camp were also experiencing worse arousal, lubrication, orgasm and pain issues compared to the other groups. In the paper published by academics from across California, Massachusetts and Vermont, they claim the results suggest that COVID-19 infection may be associated with impairment of both cognitive and physiological aspects of sexual function. They also speculate on the wider societal changes that COVID brought with it, like fewer social events and more time in close contact with children in the home, as factors in the reduction in women's libidos post-pandemic, as the mind as well as the body takes time to start firing on all cylinders again. The research was led by Amelia M. Stanton, an assistant professor of psychological and brain sciences in the College of Arts and Sciences at Boston University. Amelia, why hasn't women's sexual health post-COVID really been looked at yet? Are we still existing in this world where research focuses almost exclusively on the impacts on men? The women's literature is challenging for a number of different reasons. I think women typically lag behind in sexual health research in general, so I'm not really surprised that it took us a bit longer to think about the different domains of sexual well-being or sexual function in relationship to COVID. I think male anatomy and male genitalia are easier to study for a number of different reasons, for cis men that is, and therefore we don't necessarily spend the time that we should on thinking about women's physiology with respect to some of these COVID-related outcomes. And certainly, you know, historically, there's been more funding to study than sexual well-being and sexual function. And the Viagra studies are definitely an example of that. So women have kind of lagged behind in the research, but um, we're moving in the right direction here and trying to close that gap. 
But you kind of mentioned there that, you know, male genitalia is sometimes a little easier to look at and study when we're talking about sexual health, especially when it relates to sort of performance post-COVID. But can you explain to us how the female sexual function index works and how that tries to kind of do the same thing essentially in understanding where women are at sexually? Yeah, so the Female Sexual Function Index, and it was developed for cisgender women, so I just want to be attentive to that, but it really sort of asks key questions around these domains, desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, pain, and satisfaction. It's very helpful for us as researchers to use a tool that assesses a concept rather holistically. I mean, certainly there are other tools that attend to other factors like context and other elements that are helpful for sexual well-being. But FSFI does a really good job of giving us kind of a clear sense about each of these areas and gives us, uh, importantly, clinical cutoff scores that have been validated that differentiate women, for example, with a sexual desire problem from women who don't have a sexual desire problem or women with a sexual arousal problem from women who don't have a sexual arousal problem. So it's a pretty fast way for us to get a sense of those things quite quickly with just a 19-item measure. So after using that on just over 2,000 cisgendered women, was it immediately clear that there were some divides between those who'd had COVID and those who hadn't? No, actually, because what we first looked at was the total score. So the total score gives us a sense for, in general, how sexually, quote, functional is this woman? And there's a clinical cutoff score of 26.55. So anyone above that range is deemed sexually functional based on our clinical data. And anyone below that range is deemed to have a sexual concern or sexual problem. So actually, when we first looked at the data, we saw that both the women in the had COVID range and the never COVID range were above that 26.55 number, so they were deemed to be sexually, quote, functional. The differences started to emerge with respect to total functioning when we looked at the differences between long COVID and only COVID. So I think that's important to recognize that it was really this this long COVID group that started looking, quote, dysfunctional or that started looking like they had sexual concerns above and beyond the only COVID group. Just how impacted are those in that long-term COVID or that long COVID group? In the long COVID group, we saw differences in arousal, in lubrication, orgasm, and pain. So for those specific areas, those women are having more challenges than women who just had COVID and didn't have it over a longer time frame. I know that you haven't, you know, medically tested these 2,000 women. This is done via the FSFI survey. But are there any theories as to why there is a physiological difference for women and their sexual health when they have experienced long COVID? In general, we see that symptoms of long COVID are similar to symptoms of other sort of chronic conditions that also impact sexual well-being. So it's important to understand that COVID has physiological implications neurologically in terms of vascular processes, and those processes do impact things like vaginal blood flow or genital sexual arousal. There's also some data to suggest that long COVID is really related to underlying sensitivities to bodily sensations, discomfort or pain. So it's possible that those sensitivities really give us some insight on 
what's challenging sexually among women who are experiencing these symptoms long term. Some people have reacted to the data like, sure, if you're sick, you're not going to be interested in having sex. That's potentially true in that cognitively you might not feel as turned on or aroused by your environment or by stimuli that might otherwise arouse you. We have to look at both of those pieces, right? The physiology and the relationship between the physiological symptoms and some of the, you know, neurological vascular processes associated with long COVID. We also have to think about the cognitions and the ways in which we evaluate information sexually. So I think both of those things might be going on here. Did you also consider the social impacts on our sexual health and the fact that, you know, we essentially got locked up for a year and a bit and in some countries worse than others. And the fact that there were people around us who were were dying from COVID, like it's a lot for us to take on. And I guess sex takes a backseat when there's so many more other very more important things in our lives. Certainly. And that, you know, it, it doesn't go without saying and goes with saying it's important to recognize the social implications of being cooped up, of not having the types of interactions that you're used to having with other people, and certainly the associated kind of isolation, depression, anxiety that that might yield, right? And and certainly we know that sexual dysfunction or sexual problems, particularly cisgender women, is associated with depression, or there's a link there. And certainly the same is true for anxiety. It's absolutely important to consider the social context, and that's very meaningful, yeah. Our sex lives post-pandemic are being tracked globally, and it seems the trend is a downward one. A recent poll by the French Institute of Public Opinion found that 24% of French people aged between 18 and 69 have not had sex in the past year. That number was just 9% back in 2006. In fact, overall, the number of French adults having sex in the past year is at its lowest level in 50 years, and that phenomena has been found in other Western countries around the world too. A study across 33 countries, including England, Scotland and Wales, found that teens having their first sexual experience by 15 has declined significantly in 25 of those countries and increased in none of them. Japanese researchers found that more than 68% of marriages are now completely sexless, not the news the government was hoping for as the birth rate there is currently in freefall. In South Korea, there's even a boycott movement called 4B where tens of thousands of women follow the four commandments, say no to dating, no to sex with men, no to marriage and no to childbirth. A US study has revealed young adults across the country are having less sex. The biggest cause of that, seemingly, our collective reliance on technology, preferring to scroll or game than get all up in each other's personal space. The average number of times people are having sex has seen a decline in data from studies in Australia, Germany, Finland and many others, with academics saying that the world in general is having less sex. But now that we know that there's a link between our sexual health and the impacts of catching COVID, the long version especially, what do we do about it? How do we get our libidos back on track? I think what my colleagues and I hope that will come from these data is that, you know, women who have experienced sexual sequelae or sexual effects from their, especially their long COVID diagnoses, will feel more comfortable bringing up these concerns to their providers and these data potentially will help facilitate conversations with providers about what 
decent options are moving forward in terms of addressing these concerns. In general, there's sort of a dearth of attention to sexual well-being, sexual pleasure, sexual health and in primary care and in other settings in which COVID might be treated. So, you know, opening up conversation and dialogue is a really big step from these data. And I hope that will lead to sort of potentially increased resources and decreased stigma around talking about the sexual implications of of COVID and other chronic illnesses. So it's, it's important that those conversations are had and that providers not only wait for their patients to say, hey, I'm having this concern, but proactively ask them. Thanks for spending some time with us, Feeding Your Minds again today, friends. If there's something happening in the world and you want us to look into it a little bit further, send us an email, thequickie at mamamia.com.au or you can find us on the socials. We're on threads, Instagram, even good old Facebook. The Quickie is produced by me, Claire Murphy, with our executive producer, Callie Borg, and audio production by Jacob Round.